Some of us can remember the final or the first installment of the Indiana Jones uh, franchise, Raiders of the Lost Ark. A Lucasfilm aired in 1981. The movie was directed by none other than Steven Spielberg uh, with the story co-written by none other than George Lucas, both rather heavy hitters at the time. As a result, the, the, the movie made almost $400 million at the box office, the highest grossing film of the year and won, count them, five Academy Awards. Rotten Tomatoes calls it, quote, one of the most consummately entertaining adventure pictures of all time. That's rather high accolades. You may vaguely remember the storyline which takes place in the late 1930s. Indiana Jones, an, an archaeology professor, uh, was approached by the U.S. government to find and secure Israel's lost Ark of the Covenant. You, you see, the Nazis were racing to find it, believing that it would make their army invincible. After all, look what it did for Israel at, at Jericho. It was not lost on me and others that the Nazis who murdered six million Jews wanted the Jews' most precious religious artifact to lead them into battle. It was a fun movie, although it does mingle pagan religious elements such as the staff of Ra, the Egyptian sun god, which would lead them to the Ark's hiding place. Leave it to Hollywood for religious syncretism. The, the, the race took them to Egypt, and of course, in the end, Indiana won. The Nazis were destroyed, and the Ark was recovered. At the end of the movie, at its recovery, the Ark was shown with enormous supernatural power. In fact, I started, started to show that particular clip, but those of you who have seen it, remember that Nazis' faces melt off. I thought that might be a, much for, a bit much for our children. But thankfully... It is now secretly housed in some American warehouse for safekeeping. It does beg two very interesting questions. First, where is the Ark of the Covenant? You should know that it disappeared about 587, 586 BC when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple and took its contents to Babylon along with some people um, uh, from the southern kingdom, uh, from Judah, into captivity. Now, there's no biblical evidence that the ark was actually taken, but again, what happened to the ark? It was never returned. In fact, it disappeared. When the Roman general uh, Pompey uh, in invaded Jerusalem in 63 B.C., he forced his way into the Holy of Holies and found an empty room. <laughs> What's the big deal, he said. So again, first question, where is it? Is it, uh, uh, is it in a U.S. warehouse somewhere? <laughs> if so, you'll never find it. An apocryphal book, one of the Maccabees, says that Jeremiah hid it on Mount Nebo before the Babylonians ransacked the city. Rabbinical literature to this day says that King Josiah hid the, hid the ark under the Temple Mount where it still remains. That area cannot be excavated because of the current Muslim Dome of the Rock problem. The Ethiopians claim to safely have the ark at the St. Mary of Zion Cathedral in Aksum, Ethiopia. This is actually fairly popular. How did they get it? It's a long story, but apparently a son of Solomon conspired with the Queen of Sheba 
who visited Solomon and they, they, they carried it back to Ethiopia, leaving a fake in the temple. Yep, they've had it for thousands of years, but no one can verify it because no one's allowed to see it. Only one person. One final guess I find interesting is that somehow the ark found its way buried at the base of Mount Calvary, where, where Jesus spilled blood, made its way through the cracks and crevices and sprinkled the lid known as the mercy seat. So, the, the, the first question, where is the Ark of the Covenant? Second, perhaps more important is this, what does it matter? Oh, I suppose I wouldn't mind seeing it for its historical significance, but to be clear, it carries no religious importance today. Certainly no supernatural power. How can I say that? Because it was part of the old covenant. We know that the ark was a golden box which contained the tablets, those external tablets of stone upon which were written the Ten Commandments. Uh, the lid was called, indeed, the mercy seat, above which were two golden cherubim between, be, between which the Shekinah glory of God resided with his people. Don't miss this. Behind the veil. You, you, you see, there's actually an important third question. Where does God now reside with his people? The author of Hebrews has been meticulously reminding us that the obsolete, his word not mine, the obsolete old covenant has been both fulfilled and replaced by the new covenant. Why was this replacement needed? Because the old covenant with its law and tabernacle and Levitical priests and, and sacrificial system and ark of the covenant could never, ever take away sin forever. In fact, the whole system simply highlighted humanity's sinfulness and therefore, get this, their separation from God. While the eternal purpose of God was to have a people for himself, where he would be their God and they would be his people, the old covenant never fully met the demands to make that happen. No, 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 no. A, a, a new covenant was needed to bring his people near. We saw that two weeks ago in Hebrews 8. The longest Old Testament quote found in the New Testament. It was a quote of Jeremiah chapter 31. In the midst of the pending Babylonian captivity, God said, I'm not done with my plan to have a people. Thank God. He could have been done. He could have sent us all to hell and been justified in doing so. He said, I will bring you back. I will make a new covenant with you. A new covenant by which I will take out your hearts of stone and I will give you hearts of flesh. My, my good law will no longer be external, written on tablets of stone, buried in a golden box in a place that you cannot come wherever it is. I will write my good law internally on your hearts 
Further, I will place my Holy Spirit within you by whom you will obey. You see, the motivation to obey is no longer externally mandated, but internally motivated by love. This is the promise of the new covenant that Jesus, the the very Son of God, brought in his perfect life, his perfect death, burial, and resurrection. We have seen that the entire Old Testament system, to include the tabernacle, the priests, the sacrifices, the ark, were simply types pointing to ultimate fulfillment in Christ. And and as such, the Old Covenant has done its work and is now done away. It's obsolete. The the promises of the New Covenant are being uh, brought about in the people of God through the church. We are indeed his people. We have been brought near. He is our God. And we are his people. Bringing us to our text this morning in in Hebrews chapter 9, continuing study of the book. I, I know that I say this almost every week, but it's incredibly important that we remember the context and purpose of this book. The author is writing to Jewish believers who were facing severe persecution. As a result, they were considering quitting Christianity and the New Covenant and returning to Judaism and the Old Covenant. For our purposes, quitting Christianity and going anywhere else. Our author writes to warn them and and to encourage them. His encouragement comes like this, Jesus is better. He's he's better than the angels who who mediated the Old Covenant. He's better than Moses and and Joshua, who were rather significant leaders in the Old Covenant. He's better than Abraham and and Aaron, the first high priest under the Old Covenant. He's of a different order, of the priestly order of Melchizedek. He's better than the Levitical priesthood. He's better than the Old Testament sacrifices. His priesthood is better. His sacrifice is better. Why? His tabernacle is better. It's not an earthly tabernacle. It's a heavenly tent, uh, of which the earthly tent was simply a type. My brothers and sisters, he's saying Jesus is infinitely better. So let's stick with him. Why would you leave? The author keeps hammering the point. There is no old covenant to which you can return. And I would say there is no other religion to which you can turn. Continuing today, Hebrews 9, let's look at the first 10 verses together. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. And there was a tabernacle prepared, the the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden jar holding the manna and and Aaron's rod, which budded and, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But, but, but make no mistake about it, into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people, committed in ignorance." The Holy Spirit, what is all this meant? Well, the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, while there's still an old covenant, which is a symbol, this outer tabernacle, for the present time 
Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Wow, really. Since they relate only to food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body externally is the idea. Imposed until a time of reformation. The author's focus in these verses is this tabernacle and the divine worship. That is the prescribed worship service and regulations that went on within the tabernacle. In, in so doing, his point is these two things. Tabernacle and, and worship under the old covenant were simply symbols pointing to something much greater. Here's the outline of, of the text that we're going to see the introduction of these Old Testament types and then the tabernacle and its furnishing. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is the, 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 the tabernacle's divine worship. And then he's going to give us the meaning of all of the, the, these symbols of the tabernacle and divine worship. What do they mean? They point to something much greater to come. The author introduces his topics to us in verse 1. Some elements of the first or, or the old covenant. Yes, it had uh, regulations for divine worship. In other words, this is what you must do to approach God. And it had this earthly sanctuary, this earthly tent, earthly meaning it was of this earth, as opposed to the heavenly tent or sanctuary or tabernacle that he talked about in chapter 8. Then, then he takes them in reverse order, starting with the tabernacle and its furnishings, verses 2 to 5. For, for there was a tabernacle, there was a tent prepared. And notice he talks about the tabernacle, not the, the three temples that would, which followed. Now, now, most agree that that's because the law, the priesthood, and the sacrificial system were all introduced at the same time that the plans for the tabernacle were given. They were intimately and intricately linked, inseparable, in fact. When they, when they wandered in the wilderness, they would, they would camp around the, the tabernacle. It was the center of their religious life integral part of the old covenant there was a tent prepared he doesn't go uh, into the composition of the tent like the 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 the, ornament, the, the intricately woven um, covering nor the animal skins or the poles or the pillars things like that so we'll leave it alone he doesn't even talk about the outer courtyard there, 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 came, there became multiple courtyards around the temple but there was just one around the tabernacle surrounded by a white linen curtain that could be seen from a long way away um, inside the court, there was this altar for sacrifices. There was a labor or large bath for, for cleansing the priests. But he doesn't talk about that, so we won't. Rather, he starts in verse 2 with what he calls the outer tent. Think of it as the first room of the tabernacle. It was called the holy place. Its dimensions, it was rectangular. It was 20 cubits long, uh, 10 cubits wide, and 10 cubits high. That is 30 feet by 15 by 15, which means it really wasn't that big, about the size of this platform. In, in that first room, called the holy place, was a lampstand made of pure gold and the table of showbread. Now, the lampstand is, is often called, you may have heard it called, the, the menorah. It had three arms on each side of the main stem. So depending on whether or not there was a, 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 a lamp on the top of the main stem, there were either six or seven oil, olive oil lamps. 
get this, every day, morning and evening, the priests would come in to trim the lamps and fill them with oil. You see, they would light them at night and they would extinguish them in the morning and trim them, adding oil. There was also the table of showbread. The table was about three feet long, a foot and a half wide, and a little over two feet high. On it, every Sabbath, a priest would place 12 loaves of sacred bread made according to a specific recipe in two rows of six each. Now, sometimes you see the picture, they're stacked, sometimes they're laid out, I don't know which way it was. But I know there was pure frankincense in between them. These 12 loaves likely represented the 12 tribes of Israel. They would come in on the Sabbath. The week old bread would be eaten by the priest in the tabernacle. You wouldn't take it out. It was holy. And then it was replaced with the fresh loaves for another week. Verses 3 to 5 are the focus of the tabernacle and the focus of our author's attention. Behind the second veil, stop right there. What does it mean, second veil? Well, the first veil was between the courtyard and, and the holy place. The, 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 the second veil was between the holy place and the most holy place. Behind the second veil was a, was a tent or a room called the Holy of Holies. The, the Holy of Holies was a cube, um, 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. In it, our author says, were two pieces of furniture. The first in verse 4 is the golden altar of incense. Again, twice each day and every day, the incense according to a specific recipe. The recipe's in there, but it was only to be used in the tabernacle. You would not burn this. You would not diffuse this in your homes. It was refreshed and it was burned every day, twice a day. This is what Zacharias was doing in Luke chapter 1 when he went into the temple to care for the altar of incense. It was there he was told by an angel that he and his barren wife Elizabeth would bear a son that they, whom they would call John, who would become John the Baptist. There is a small challenge here. Clearly in Exodus and Leviticus, the altar of incense was in the holy place, not in the holy of holies. So why does our author, who clearly would know this, place it within the most holy place, the holy of holies? Most agree that it's because it was right in front of the second veil, which meant the incense was intended for the holy of holies, but you couldn't have the priest going in twice a day into the holy of holies. No, no, no. That was only for the high priest once a year. Further, when the high priest did go into the holy of holies on the day of atonement, he would take some of the incense with him into the most holy place. Clearly, the most important piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies was, of course, the Ark of the Covenant. Thank you, Indiana Jones. We have talked about it a lot. It was a box made of acacia wood covered in pure gold, both inside and out, about four feet long, a little over two feet wide, a little over two feet high. As we've seen, inside were the two tablets of stone upon which were written the Ten Commandments inscribed by the very finger of God. And there was also a jar of, a golden jar of manna. You'll remember manna was that wafer-like um, bread from heaven that, that God fed the Israelites for their 40 years of wilderness wanderings. There was also this Aaron's budding rod. What, what is that about? 
Well, you may remember that in Numbers 17, there, were, there, were, there was a group of people who challenged Aaron's leadership, that is being named the high priest. Well, who makes him high priest? Who indeed? Led by Korah, God checked the rebellion with a plague. Right after the plague ended, God told them to get 12 rods, one from a leader of each of the 12 tribes, place them in the tabernacle. The next day, the one that sprouted buds, more than buds, leaves and almonds, would be the tribe that God had chosen for the priesthood. Of course, it was Aaron's rod, Levi's rod, that budded. So that rod, that particular rod, was placed in the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 5 speaks of the pure golden cherubim that were placed on top of that lid of the ark uh, that was called the mercy seat. These angelic beings faced each other, but they had their faces cast downward. Their wings came together and overshadowed the mercy seat. It was within those overshadowing wings that the glory cloud, the Shekinah glory cloud of God resided symbolizing his presence with his people, which is why they were called the cherubim of glory. So this is the description the author gives. He says that there is much more that he could say in detail about these things, but now wasn't the time. Bringing us to the regulation for the regulations for divine worship within the tabernacle, verses 6 and 7. Verse 6 talks about what, what goes on in the holy place. That is, that, that first outer tent. There the priests enter continually, actually daily, twice a day, to perform their functions. But please notice, don't miss this, please notice, they were not allowed be behind the second veil into the Holy of Holies. No, 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 no. Oh, verse 7 says, into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking the blood of the sacrifices on the day of atonement. I say sacrifices because first there was the blood from a bull for his own sins and the sins of his family. And second was the blood of the goat. Yes, there were two goats. One was a scapegoat that was released. He doesn't mention it. But there was this, this goat that was sacrificed for the sins of the people. But what are these Sins of ignorance, uh, committed in ignorance. Well, first, notice even ignorant sin incurs guilt. I'm sorry, officer, I didn't know I was speeding. Doesn't matter, you still get the ticket. Second, sins of ignorance, most agree, are sins committed unintentionally. Again, this doesn't mean that they, they are not sins, they are, nor does it even necessarily mean that the sinner doesn't know that they were sins. They likely did. The idea is that these were not sins committed with what the Old Testament calls a high hand, meaning f committing them fully aware of your rebellion against God, your, God, against your willful rebellion against God. I know this is wrong. I don't care, God. I'm going to do it anyway. It's compared to the sin of apostasy. The point of all of that is this. Don't miss this. Both the physical setup of the tabernacle and the regulations for worship spoke one thing very loudly. Separation. The people were not allowed within the tent. Oh, no, no. They were allowed to go into the outer court as close, but as close as they could get was to, was to the altar where they would bring their sacrifices. They could go no further. They certainly couldn't go into the tent, outer or inner. 
Even the priests were not allowed in, into the Holy of Holies, where, where the presence of God resided. Oh, no, that was for the high priest, and that only once a year. We've talked about this before. Even though God was the God of the Israelites, they could only come so close because of their sinfulness. Imagine being an Israelite, worshiping the God of God, Yahweh. There's only one true and living God, and worshiping Him your entire life, but you can only come so close. entire system kept you away. It brings us to our last point. What, what all of this signifies in, in verses 8 to 10, he tells us. Again, the point is, you, you can't get to the Holy of Holies. You can't even get to the holy place under the old covenant, not while it was still around. Look at verse 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the older tabernacle is still standing, meaning while the old covenant was still in effect, you can't go there. Let that sink in. The way to God, even as an Israelite, the way to God was barred. You're not welcome. Verse 9, the outer tabernacle is a symbol for this present time. That is, while this tabernacle was standing. Make sure you catch what he is saying. This is quite interesting. The outer tent, that is the holy place, was a symbol, uh, 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 of, the, uh, uh, was a symbol of the old covenant. The priests were allowed to come in and worship, but they could not come into the very presence of God. Uh, Access was denied. You could only come so close. You're not welcome. Andrew Murray says it like this. The veil was the symbol of separation between a holy God and sinful man. They cannot dwell together. God called man to come and worship and serve him, and yet he might not come too near. Uh, oh, no. The veil kept him at a distance. Love calls the sinner near. Righteousness keeps him back. And let me just say at this point that love and righteousness are met at the cross. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Are, are you kidding? This is the whole challenge. The, the way into the presence of God required a sacrifice that would first make atonement for the sinner and second, clear the conscience of the sinner. How can you pray to God and lift your, lift your eyes to God? You couldn't. Your conscience weighed you down. One of my commentaries suggested that our guilty consciences of sin acted as the veil that kept us from the presence of God. The old covenant could do nothing about that. In fact, the old covenant was a constant reminder. The old covenant was a constant, consistent reminder. You can't come here. There was a barrier erected. The first and second veils, constant reminders of our sinfulness, our sullied consciences that kept us from the very presence of God. 
Not only that, the very day of atonement offered year after never-ending year was a constant reminder of our sinfulness. People kept sinning. And those sins needed constant, never-ending sacrifices for atonement and forgiveness. The whole system was a reminder of our constant and consistent failure. How you feeling now? See verse 10? All those food and drink offerings, in addition to all of those sacrifices, all of those washings and regulations were for the external, were for the body, were imposed. They never cleansed the conscience. They were, in fact, constant reminders. Every time you did something, they were constant reminders of your failure. Feel like approaching God now? That is until the time of reformation. Simply a way of referring to the internal, internal, internal reform made possible by the coming of the new covenant that Jesus brought. (laughs) My brothers and sisters, we can actually have cleansed, purified consciences. Have you ever been bothered by that beatitude that says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God? Has it ever bothered you? If you know Jesus, you are pure in heart, and you'll see God. Made so, pure, purified consciences, made so by the once for all sacrifice of Jesus himself. That sacrifice was offered not in an earthly tabernacle, but in a heavenly tabernacle where we find, remember, both mercy and sins forgiven, never to be remembered again, never to be held to our account. Again, don't miss this. The holy of holies then becomes a symbol of the new covenant. Yes, the high priest went into the presence of God only once a year, but we were not allowed. But now our great high priest has gone in before us, remember, as a forerunner, destroying the veil, making access to the God of the universe a reality in our lives. Do you understand the difference of of living today and before Christ? You want to live under the provisions of the old covenant where you couldn't even draw near to God? That's the point. Why would you quit? Why would you leave what we have? We don't need earthly priests. We have a great high priest named Jesus. He entered the heavenly tabernacle with the offering of his own blood, the blood of the new covenant. Do you see, under the old covenant, you could come, but you could only come so close. Under the new covenant, we come into the very presence of God, right there with those high priests that used to come before, only we get to go and stay. It's unbelievable. So we don't need anything from the old covenant. We don't need the tabernacle. We don't need the sacrifices. Now listen, we don't need the Ark of the Covenant where the blood was sprinkled year after year. Who cares where that bloody thing is? And I say that, Joy Dagger, not as a English profanity, but literally, who cares where that bloody thing is? Think about this. Every year the high priest went in and sprinkled blood from the from bulls and goats. There's no indication that the blood was ever cleaned up. For centuries, blood was sprinkled. So even if you could find the ark, it would be a bloody mess. 
and a reminder of our sinfulness. But Christ, you see, has made a sacrifice once for all, and our sins, listen, are remembered no more. And now he is seated at the Father's right hand, making intercession for us, his people. And we can actually then draw near. The second veil of the temple, it was torn in two from top to bottom, right there in Matthew chapter 27, signifying access to the Father. What did the Jews do? Did they enter in? Hey, we can all go in. No, they sewed it right back up, re-erected the barrier. Listen to me. Which is what you do every time you remember and wallow in past forgiven sin. It's gone. Let me close with this. Jesus did what the sacrifices of the old covenant could never do. He didn't just merely cover our sins. He took them in his own body to the cross, removing them by his own substitutionary death. One author says it like this. Listen carefully. Think of the most terrible thing you have ever done. The dark secret that haunts your nights. The great truth that if people really knew, if they knew about that, you got it? They would condemn you. God, who knows that secret and who does see that sin, has placed it upon his own son so that you will not be condemned. Hallelujah. He goes on to quote Paul's great truth in Colossians chapter 2. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all. If you write in your Bibles, circle the word all. Having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against, that's the old covenant. That's the law. He canceled it out, which was hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Under the provisions of the new covenant, through the blood of his son, God has forgiven all our sins, all our sins. And there is nothing that he holds to our account. My brothers and sisters, I want you to speak that truth to yourself that old saying is true why should we remember what God has forgotten let's pray Father thank you for what you have done for us because of Jesus Forgive us for treating lightly the blood of the covenant. Forgive us for neglecting our salvation. For, forgive us for not celebrating moment by moment, day by day, the access that we have into your very presence. Something that the Old Testament people of God never had. And, and here I can, as a believer priest, in front of a bunch of believer priests, we enter into the throne room to find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Thank you that we 
have purified, cleansed, forgiven, remembered no more consciences, removed of the guilt of sin to be made pure, holy, right, glorious children of God. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.